Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to Silver Linings, part of the Next Real family of film podcasts on True Story FM. Have you ever liked or even loved a movie that everyone else just seems to hate? Well, you are not alone, my friend. We look at movies that are often panned by critics and audiences to see if their hate is warranted. Sure, we'll talk about what might be broken, 
But more important, we talk about what really works in these films with the hope that we change some minds along the way. Perhaps even yours? So, sit back, relax, and let's take the guilt out of guilty pleasures. This is Silver Linings. Hello, I'm Ray, your eternal optimist. And I'm Ocean. For this episode of Silver Linings, we'll be taking a look at John Carpenter's 1996 film, Escape from L.A. Welcome to the theater. For everyone's enjoyment, we'd like to remind you of the following rules. No talking. No smoking. No littering. No red meat. No freedom of religion. And remember, all marriages must be approved by the Department of Health. Failure to obey these rules will result in immediate loss of citizenship and deportation to the island of Los Angeles. Enjoy the show. Your rules are really beginning to annoy me. We ran a psycho profile on him using a database of five million sociopathic personalities. He hit the bottom of the curve. Catches on quick, doesn't she? Loves a winner. Just say we play a little Bangkok rules. Nobody draws until this hits the ground. You ready? All right, Ocean, we have a big one here this episode. Yes, we do. It's Escape from L.A., uh, a movie that um, I personally knew about when it was in theaters. I did not, however, see it when it was in theaters. I was uh, Why in not? college at the time. I was in college at the time, and I just you know, had other things going on. Other things going on. Exactly. I just had to do other things. So then after a few years, I, uh, you know, went down to my local Blockbuster. Yes, Blockbuster was still around back then. <laughs> um, and so I went to Blockbuster and rented it and, uh, you know, rented the movie, saw it and really enjoyed it. Uh, how, how were you introduced? About a year ago, I was trying to watch as many John Carpenter movies as I could that I hadn't yet seen because uh, I'm a big fan of The Thing and Halloween and everything that I'd seen of Carpenter's I'd liked. So I really wanted to get right into his universe there. And as many movies that he made that were good, he really has a couple of stinkers too. This was one of them. I watched Escape from New York first, obviously, and then I uh, watched this one. And at the time, you know, I, I thought that this was inferior to Escape from New York, but I have really grown to love it in the years since. Yeah, well, I've I've always preferred this movie, but then, you know, again, I, I think that I'm biased in a different sense in that I had not seen Escape from New York when I saw this. I So when it came out, you know, I, I had no history or knowledge of who the character Snake Plissken was, um, but when I did see this, I did enjoy this movie, and I subsequently, uh, actually very recently was the first time I've, I've seen Escape from New York. And I, having seen them both, I definitely find Escape from L.A. to be the, the better, more enjoyable movie. You know, I, I really find your perspective on, not perspective, but your approach on watching these movies really interesting, like how you watch this one first. And whenever you watch this the first time, 
did you find yourself wondering about, you know, what came first? Did they establish any of this before? You know, is there more I should know about Snake Plissken or anything like that? Uh, no, I think the only thing that I found um, was that in Escape from L.A., he seems to be the most famous outlaw in the world. Sure, yeah. And they, they do establish that he's, you know, basically... Um, although they don't really have the FBI mentioned by name in this movie, he's basically the FBI's number one most wanted. So that it makes sense that everybody else there, you know, a lot of people in the in the in LA seem to already know who he is. Um, so I didn't know if some if he had done something in the previous movie that made him more famous or not. But beyond that, I, I didn't feel that there was anything about the plot. I didn't feel lost or wondering what happened in, in in Escape from New York. I found that I just, you know, really enjoyed this for what it was. And after having seen Escape from New York, I, which we can de definitely talk about a little bit more later, I, I can, I definitely understand why I did not feel lost in any way. Right. Yeah. All right. So, well, there's more we can talk about there, but like you said, we'll touch on that later. But right now, let's talk about the critical consensus for this movie. Yes, let's do that. You now have the option to repent of your sins and be electrocuted on the premises. If you elect this option, notify the clearance sergeant in your processing area. So I, th I think that a good summary of it, this critical consensus was fairly mixed. and um, But I think that from the... Rotten Tomatoes, their overall recap summary of it. it. It it says, you know, the escape from L.A. has its moments, although it certainly suffers in comparison to the cult classic that preceded it. And that's, that's the overall summary that they're getting from critics. I I don't ex agree with that entirely, but that is, you know, that's the critics' reviews. The mm -hmm. one bad review that I saw um, that was on Empire Online from that that was a contemporary uh, contemporaneous review uh, was okay. that it was a monumentally misconceived sequel. Escape oh from L.A. is the huge shonky blemish on the magnificent history <laughs> of John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. With Who talks fatally like that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it, 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 it goes on. With fatally clunky satire and none of Escape from New York's seedy menace, the film utterly blunts Snake Plissken's edge. Neat cameos, Steve Buscemi, Peter Fonda, Bruce Camel, liven things up, but by the time Snake surfs cinema's shoddiest CG wave, you'll wish you had patches over both eyes. Oh my. And I, yes. And I, I think that was a good encapsulation I saw of the negative reviews of it in that uh, this reviewer, li like many at the time, I think, um, didn't appreciate Escape from LA because they were comparing it to the idea in their head um, from Escape from New York. A lot mm. of people liked it. It was it became a, it became a cult classic. And I think if that's what you had in your head, uh, for some people they weren't able to accept this. Um, you know, really not so much a sequel, but really more of a you know like a, a remake of Escape from New York. Sure, I'll concede to that. <laughs> there you have it. So that being said. It seems like everybody and their mother had something bad to say about this. Yes. And a, a lot of it was the same. Everyone had very similar things to say. And I think there were three big points in particular that kept being repeated. The, I think the first one was what you said, that this is essentially a crappy remake. It's it's a carbon copy story-wise. Uh, it's not a crappy remake. It is a great remake. I agree. <laughs> Otherwise, why would we talk about it on this show? But um, that's what people say. And to be perfectly honest, it does follow many of the same story points. It starts off the same way where Snake Plissken is, like you said, this outlaw that's brought in and they're going to put him in prison. And it just so happens that 
as he's waiting for the boat or the plane, whatever it is to take him to the island, that they are in need of his services. So in this one, poison him, or say they poison him, spoiler, and he uh, basically blackmail him into doing their bidding in this movie, going into LA and getting the black box with the weapon and also to kill the president's daughter who has turned on him and tried to give over state secrets to the enemy. Yes, they yeah, they they do that. It is it, it's the same plot, right? It, you know, it <laughs> is the same plot and that's fine, right? The, I think honestly from a major plot standpoint the only real difference is you knew in Escape from New York what the tape was for, where in this one the black box was this mystery component that you didn't really know what it was until pretty much two thirds in the way through the film when they finally reveal what it does and what, you know, what, what they, what they want. But right. um, yes, it, it's, it's a, it's the same plot. Right. And so I think that this movie is a good um, remake or a good, I guess a good uh, exercise in uh, the filmmaker saying, Hey, if we had more money and could do the actual movie we wanted to do and a little bit, make it a little bit more fun, we'd make this. You know, because Escape from New York is very gritty and it took itself very seriously, where Escape from L.A. is is much more of a, you know, it has the gritty elements of we're going to take the baddest guy in the country and put him in a, in a hellhole, no-win situation to, you know, have a mission that he needs to complete. But it, it has more fun with itself and it doesn't take itself as right. seriously as Escape from New York. Right, yeah. And, you know, you could argue all day that one of the biggest problems with a lot of remakes is how it tends to not very, very much from its predecessor. And while that can be a problem with some sequels, I don't think it's always a problem. And I think that this is a perfect example. Like you were saying, it does take the same elements, but it's very different in tone and in execution than Escape from New York. Although it does follow many of the same beats as Escape from New York, it does it very differently. And right there is the key. And right there is also why you could consider this a remake while it is a sequel. So it's, it's a reboot quote. That's what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You could consider it a remake or a reboot or sequel or whatever. But like we both have said by this point, and I don't want to beat a dead horse. It's very different in tone and in execution. And I think that essentially, uh, Carpenter and even Kurt Russell did with this movie what I think they wish they could have done with the first one in many regards. I mean, they had a bigger budget. They had uh, way more experience. They had more to work with. I think they were doing a little bit more with satirizing the Los Angeles of that time to an extent than they did with New York back in the early 80s. So there's a lot there. Yeah, yes, I agree. I think that they wanted to thread the needle and did a, a decent job of threading the needle between taking some serious ideas, uh, like you know having a, a president who has a lifetime term, uh, you mm, know, making yes. it where he's very, um, you know, very honest, honestly dictatorial in in his in his approach to how he's governing the, the governing the United States. Uh, he's made a penal colony where it's like, well, if you're going to be, not only if you commit a crime, are you there? But if we plan to deport you, we put you over there. Basically anyone that is considered an undesirable person is then thrown off to the side and then, you know, kept away from, 
you know, good, the good citizens of the United States. And so there's that dark piece of it alongside uh, with a lot of other scenes that, you know, that amp up s- some of the action, but also, you know, allow you to really enjoy the movie in its understanding of, hey, we've taken this world and then we've created a situation where we've given uh, our, our hero an impossible task in a, a ridiculous mission to, uh, to do. And then so we're going to amp that up and then amp up the ridiculousness of it all and then really enjoy it and have fun with it. Like, you know, an, a great example would be the basketball scene, right? Mm, yeah. Game time! So, you know, so in that scene, you know, it's, I enjoy that scene, you know, partially because it's, you know, it's out of place. Right. You know, it, it, it provides uh, what it really provides is it's kind of a basic glimpse at the change of the gladiator theme. Right. In Escape from New York, they, you know, Skank had a gladiator fight that he had to do to, to get by. Right. So they kind of took that same beat and said, hey, we're just going to have it where you played basketball. Right. You know, and so in the, in the entertainment conceit for the people, you know, the masses or the, the masses in the movie are like, you know, hey, we want to see someone who, you know, thinks they can make it, but ultimately fail. Right, you know, because you're gonna have to get the. You only have two points. You got to make five baskets, full court, back and forth in ten seconds. Right, so mostly, you know, and everybody fails, and then once they fail, then they get shot up, and everybody's excited, ecstatic. Right, mm-hmm. and and the scene, the scene itself, a, it's out of place and it's ludicrous. Um, but B, you know, it's interesting in various ways. Visually, it looks, you know, it looks funny with Kurt Russell dribbling a basketball with his golden locks flying, and you know, back behind him, and and then also, um, you know, it is interesting in that. You know, he made all of the shots in the in the uh, in the scene, right? That he actually right. took time because yeah, he, he did yeah he did it himself and he did make the sauce. Now, I don't think he did it all in ten seconds, but no. he did. I think they I think they cut, but he did actually make the shots and then it made it where it, it provided a dose of realism of the basketball alongside of with with his success, right? So it's it's a ridiculous fun scene. Right, you know, there's there's humor in it. You see, your your hero is then overcoming his next challenge and moving on to get further closer to 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 his ultimate mission goal. And at the same time, it's you know it's it's quirky and fun. Right, and you know, in all honesty, a lot of the things that are quote unquote the same as in Escape from New York, I think work a lot better in Escape from L.A. Give you an example, both movies. He's working on a time limit, right? First movie, he had explosives implanted into his neck that were going to detonate in, I think it was 22 hours. Okay. Then in this movie, instead of getting the explosives implanted, he is scratched and given a virus or so he is told. Yes. And what I like about that is a... The time limit is different. He only has eight hours as opposed to 22. And I think that works a lot better because for one thing, it feels a little bit more realistic than running around New York for 22 hours. But also as the movie progresses, you can see Kurt Russell act sicker. You know what I mean? Yes. So like, yes. 20 minutes after getting into LA, you know, he's starting to sweat a lot more, even when he's standing still. And then you see him like shaking 40 minutes in. Uh, I remember particularly uh, noticing whenever he walked into the basketball court, the scene you were just talking about. And right as he walks in, you can see him like shuddering and he's like really pale and sickly looking, you know, and he's only got 
at that point, what, about an hour left? So yes. it's really amped up from what it was in Escape from New York. Also, I thought, <laughs> quite frankly, I thought the MacGuffin was cooler. Instead of <laughs> in Escape from New York, I think, what was it? He had a, The president had a briefcase full of information on nuclear fusion or something that was supposed to yes. create yeah, world peace or something. Gonna, if he played this right. tape, it would, it would give world peace, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> that's, I, I don't get me wrong. I love Escape from New York, but that's not nearly as exciting yeah, you're, you're as there. what we get here, which is satellite access to basically wipe out all electronics, electricity, anywhere on the globe that you choose and send that said area to the Dark Ages. Yeah, it, it is It is a more interesting MacGuffin. I mean, you have to also even... Um, <sighs> suspend some of the reality of, of that. And I think that's part of you do. the thing to say, like, like an EMP isn't a permanent state, right? Whereas they were saying that, you know, <laughs> by doing this on the, on the world, if you have an EMP that it's going to do, you know, that all electronics will work, will, will cease to work indefinitely. And, that, and that's not how an EMP works, uh, but it's still very fun. <laughs> it's very fun for the movie. Right. And so I think that is another instance of, of where, where the movie is, is having more fun with things. And that's probably why Carpenter didn't end up doing Escape from Earth, which is what they wanted to do after yes. this. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Had nothing to do with the box office take. No, no. Given some of the primary critical uh, instances of it, should we discuss the surfing scene? <laughs> that seems that is the single most disliked scene in in the movie. And so, if you, uh, so the surfing scene is, you know, it's set up where uh there's there's a a random surfer uh played by peter fonda who shows up in the beginning of the movie disappears for most of the movie and then he shows up near the you know the, the last third and, and in that scene he happens to be on wilshire boulevard and he's going to go surfing and so <laughs> we'll just ignore and i'll skip over for a minute how our hero snake pussy got to wilshire boulevard and why he's standing there but he's he's there uh, Peter Fonda is going to start surfing, and as luck would have it, when Snake shows up, he has an extra surfboard. And so from there, then a tsunami is coming um, because the, the as a result of all of the constant aftershock tremors that LA experiences, uh, they have a tsunami. It's a, it's a big tidal wave. A uh, wave of tsunami comes down through Wilshire Boulevard. And then Peter, uh, then Peter Fonda and Kurt Russell are then surfing. They're surfing down Wilshire Boulevard. They take time to give each other the thumbs up, the high five. They you know talk for a bit about they're having um, a lot of fun. And then also, um, then when the scene to end the scene, as uh, Kurt Russell sees while he's surfing, he is actually chasing. Uh, he's chasing oh, Steve Buscemi, who played. Map to the stars, map, map, Eddie. Stars, map to the stars, Eddie. Yes, thank you. So he's chasing map. So uh, as the scene ends, Kurt Russell is chasing Map of the Stars, Eddie, played by Steve Buscemi. And uh, what he does is he rides his surfboard up the wave and then jumps off of it and onto his moving car. Uh, and so the the scene <laughs> itself is great. It's 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 it, it is it's great in in that it is campy and fun and, and it's you know it's it's a bit ridiculous, right? The, you know, and so I think that. The, the theme of this movie as a whole, you know, you have to kind of, you need to go with it. You need to go with and enjoy the, the fun of the fun of what this movie is providing. Now, the scene itself is often derided because of the execution, right? Because the CGI does look 
you know, it's it's not the greatest CGI, right? And and CGI they definitely they with you know with the surfing idea, it's all it is typically hard to do with water, um, you know. And so and what they what they had to do to do the scene was they were using, I don't know if you've seen those. Uh, in San Diego, there's a lot of them where they have these surfing bars where people, it's a bar and it has like, basically, if you think of it like a forever pool, it's basically mm. like a forever wave. So there's a wave that's constantly okay. going and you can hop on a surfboard in this bar and then okay. ride, ride the surfboard. Right. And so they utilize that as the framework to then build the rest of the scene out. Now, uh, CGI wasn't really caught up with dealing with water and moving sure. water at the time to make it look really good. But also the other problem they had was most people can't do that. Even professional surfers have a hard time riding in surf bars because it's, it is a very different, uh, you know, it's a very different uh, type of mechanics than riding on a wave. And so they sure, were, yeah. th th so they had to, you know, try to find people that could then do it, uh, you know, that weren't stunt people that they could then, you know, have them set up to it and then build the CGI around them. And so I, I think that, you know, yeah, the CGI had a lot of issues. There was a lot of uh, technical issues that definitely were at the time, something that had not been solved in order to do it. But the scene itself is still entertaining for the fact that, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to, in the middle of this movie, you know, have a bro, a surfing bro scene. <laughs> hey, it's just like mozzarella sticks, cheesy goodness in every bite. Am I right? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. A <laughs> couple of things. So you mentioned he just so happened to have a second surfboard with him, but I noticed on last watch, he has more than just that second surfboard. He has at least three. And that kind of makes sense because the first time we meet Pipeline, the surfer, he is, he has a gun on Snake whenever Snake first arrives in the submarine. And there are several other surfers coming in into the beach from the water. And they're like, you know, we want you off our beach. So it kind of makes sense to me that he would have a couple of extra surfboards with him. If right. he's always hanging out with other surfers. Uh, now <laughs> as far as the CGI, you know, the first time I watched it, yeah, it, it looks kind of bad, but given the context of the time, this movie came out in 1996. It, it did. There wasn't very much <laughs> progress in the way of CGI, as far as making it look realistic. I mean, CGI had been around and had been being used for some time up to this point in varying degrees. But like, for instance, I think of the previous year in 1995, when we got the movie Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and how stinking bloody awful the CGI in that movie looked. You compare that to this, and this is like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, I'm True. not saying that it's. I'm not saying it's great. I'm not even necessarily saying that it's good. What I'm saying is, it's good enough. I think for what this movie is, it's a cheesy movie. It doesn't. It's not taking itself that seriously. And to be perfectly honest. I can take it with a big enough grain of salt to to enjoy it. Yes, I, I, I do as well. And I think that there were some challenges with the water with the CGI that I outlined earlier. But at the same time, I think there is some, with the CGI execution, some of it does have to just fall on that, you know, the people that were doing it were not quite as good because, oh, right. you know, CGI does move forward. But three years later, 
This is the 96. Three years later, The Matrix comes out. Oh. So, so CGI just doesn't jump that far in three years. There is a difference in you know the people that, that did it. But for this movie, I felt that the, uh, you know, as, you, as you stated earlier, the, the, the bad CGI adds to the movie. Right. It, right. it adds it adds to the campiness and it adds to, you know, the overarching story of, of, of what we're telling what we're saying here, right? Mm-hmm. And to be fair, let's give credit where credit's due. I do remember uh seeing in one of the bonus features on the Blu-ray that the people that were doing the special effects for scenes like this, uh I don't remember the exact name of the company, but I'm pretty sure that it was uh, directly tied in with the studio, they flat out said up to that point, they had never done digital effects like this. This was the yeah. first thing they'd ever done like this. So, exactly. and it looked like it, <laughs> it did, <laughs> it, did. it did. So, yeah. Hey, you got, you got to cut your teeth somehow. So another scene to discuss is the meeting of Hershey Las Palmas. <laughs> and that is the name of, of Pam Greer's character. Uh, yes. And so I think this is another way in which John Carpenter and, and, and Kurt Russell, because he has a writing credit on this, took the movie in a direction different than what you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took the beautiful Pam Greer and cast her as a trans man. Uh, mm-hmm. They uh, deepened her voice and it made it sound a little bit strange. And it made, the, uh, it made that casting choice one in which where whenever she was talking, you were never really fully comfortable, uh, you know, with, with the character. Cause it just seemed, cause you know, you see Pam Greer, uh, she's, you know, very, very well known, uh, very mm-hmm. famous. And until so you're looking at her until so then you, when she starts talking, you expect to hear Pam Greer's voice, right? right? She's been in a lot of movies, so people know what she sounds like. And so when, when his other voice comes out, it's, just, it's still just a little bit off putting, but you know, just odd. Yeah. So I, think this is, I think odd is better. <laughs> is a better choice than off putting. It's just, it's just odd. Um, they and dropped so, it a couple of decibels. Yes, they did. They did. They dropped a couple of decibels. And, and so I think that uh, the, the character itself was, the, was you know, really in a way, you know, they, we talked about the, the black box being a MacGuffin. But I, I think in some ways, you know, so was this character, right? This character was someone that just so happened to know Snake from the past, uh, you know, happened to have, you know, outstanding. They each believed that they won. They owed each other something. Uh, and then, you know, got there and then, and that character's really sole purpose was to get our hero snake from point A to point B was to get him from where they were to the, you know, the penultimate scene, uh, in, Mm. in what was Disneyland, but not Disneyland. Um, and that's, you know, and that's really what it was, but I think happy kingdom, I think exactly. It was a happy, happy kingdom. I think you're right. Um, but. I think that, you know, part of what they were trying to do along the way here is there is some idea of, you know, character development and plot and, you know, story movement with this, right? That you're going to have it where he has relationships with the outside world and he has to deal with the effects of what has happened to him in his past. But really the, the character itself is, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting choice. It, it, it looks, seems a bit odd. And then also it makes it where not only is, is it a little odd, but then also it provides something that at the time seemed a little bit, uh, was was lesser than what you would thought, which was, you know, there is, once they get to Happy Land, you know, she basically, as a woman, is is an equal in an action sequence with men, right? She's equally fighting them, fighting hand-to-hand. She's fighting the same with, with the guns and everything like that. And that was, at the time, not as common, 
right? You know, mm -hmm. cut to maybe five years later, you start seeing more and more female action stars, you know, action stars and action vehicles and movies, where at this time it wasn't as common of a thing to do. So I think that the, the filmmakers deserve some credit in, even though they, you know, did a ham-fisted way to get this in, right? That they did, you know, they did start, they did have a scene of where, hey, we're going to have a woman who is going to fight alongside men and it's going to be unequal to them and not someone that needs to be safe. Yeah. I, I think it was a bold move to make it a transgender person. Yes. At the time, that also was was uh, nowhere near as common as, as you'd see in movies now. And even even now, it's, it's, it, is, it is more common in that it is not shocking, but it is not still something that you see in, in, in every movie. And also, you still you don't see that much in, in action movies. Right. And I think it was a great idea, personally, to choose Pam Greer for that role because it's so unexpected. Because she is the living embodiment to many people of femininity. And to see her yes, as yes. someone who used to be a man, what was it, Carjack Malone? Yeah, <laughs> yes. well, I, I only refer to her as Hershey Las Palmas because that was her chosen name. And that's another thing. I um, was watching an interview with Kurt Russell, and I think he might have been the one to come up with the idea for a transgender person. And I think the the way they came up with the name Hershey was because it's they just put an R in the word he, she. Oh, nice. Okay. I, I, I always thought it was a candy bar, but the way it is spelled, that does make sense. <laughs> but, uh, and I've, I also read that whenever she came in to audition for the role, she <laughs> wore a, a rolled up a roll of socks in her pants, which she kept for the movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it was very method, but you can't really tell. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> so, but I, I really, really liked that character and I really wish that they hadn't waited until close to the end to introduce her because she has the moment those two characters meet in the movie, they have such <laughs> a funny chemistry, not funny, like weird, but funny, like entertaining. Uh, soon as she speaks, he says, I know that voice carjack. <laughs> <laughs> it's like nobody calls me Carjack. Right. Yeah, though the the two the two actors did a great job with their chemistry in that they did seem they did that they did a good job of portraying people that had known each other for several years and at one time were friends. Right. And then I, I also thought it was really funny that you know the, throughout the movie people are bringing up you know this escape that he that Snake Plissken has had since the previous movie that happened in Cleveland. Everyone's talking about Cleveland, and then you come to find out that the reason Cleveland got botched was because of Carjack slash Hershey. And I thought that was a really nice way of kind of bringing that together. Okay, so then another thing that I think we're while we're jumping all over the place about different parts of this movie, there's. Uh, you know, one thing that a lot of people have made a big deal of, which was the cameo of Bruce Campbell, mm, yeah. um, and 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 whether or not that went over well, right? Because the the scene is is very odd, where he's you know escaping from the was it the Surgeon General, the Surgeon General of Beverly Hills, right? Right. So Bruce Campbell plays plays that, which honestly, in a role that it, while I saw him in the credits and I was looking for him for the whole movie, the first time I saw this. I did not recognize that that's who he was. 
Right. Um, right. And so, yeah. So, and Rick uh, Baker makeup job. Yes, exactly. Yes. Very, very good makeup job. So, uh, you know, that, that, that scene, you know, there are the people that had, you know, different quibbles with that in terms of not only well, the, you know, the makeup or the design or whatever, but also that, you know, they felt that he was somewhat underutilized. The scene for me itself, I thought was a good way to kind of move forward um, in, the, in the plot, right? At that point, we're so early in, Snake still just got there and he has done really w- the same thing that happened in Escape from New York, met a random Random girl, random woman there, right? And then yep. they end up in some form of in some form of trouble where their life is threatened, right? And so then they get out of that predicament, and and honestly, that to me that that's the scene itself. You know, it's notable for you know it has like a lot of you know weird creatures and a lot of ideas about plastic surgery. So you can then discuss and think: Are they trying to make a statement about you know what would happen with plastic surgery run amok? Or you know, take it too far, or something like that. But I, I think to me that was just another set of just a weird sequence, right? You know, and the the, right. the sequence of not only them being caught and then they're escaping, but but also I found that for me, and this is I guess my confession about some of my dark humor with this was, uh, so when in that scene uh, he is. Uh, Kurt Russell, Snake, Snake is in is being captured with uh, Taslima, who's played by uh, uh, Valeria Galino, um, and so they they get captured, they escape, um, and then when they're in an alley, in an alleyway, or I guess I'm oh, sorry, they're on a bridge. When they're on a bridge afterwards, right? She gives a great little mini speech about you know how right. how L.A. is is the last place of freedom in the United States. Um, yeah. You know, it's that place of freedom. It's, you know, she starts espousing a few other good things about the place. And then she says poignantly, when you get to know L.A., it's not so bad. And then she is immediately shot in the back and dies. Right? <laughs> and so, so, it's like, so it's like you just can't win. You know, it's like you really there's this kind of statement of like, even if you've started to come to embrace it, you, you, just, you just can't win. I mean, and there is even you can't win with it. And also there's also the deeper sense and so they try to get through a uh, deeper sentiment they try to get through with her character even being there that she was there because she was muslim right which at the time sure, yeah. in 1996 you know seemed extreme reaction to an authoritarian rule right that you would then yeah. send someone to prison and deport them off because they were muslim you know and then it's it's it is point, point interesting that it's it, Back then, it was a really you know ridiculous idea, and even today, it's you know, much more like okay, well, that's a ridiculous idea. But you know, this was 1996, so about six years later, all, all of a sudden, it became like, well, this is not a ridiculous idea anymore, right? You know, once yeah. you had the you know, so you know, in around 2001 to 2002, 2003, in that time frame, you know, that became like it's much more of a of, of a serious topic, you know, you know about you know about whether or not you would have people placed in prisons for their religious faith. Right. And so there, even though the reason that she was there, I thought was an interesting nod and maybe a little bit ahead of its time in terms of trying to, you know, communicate ideas about how authoritarian rules can, can run amok. Um, I, I did still find it fun and humorous the way that after she espouses a love for LA, she gets shot. And, Man, you're getting all nice. serious up in here. Yeah. Well, I, I think there are, there are there's, <laughs> look, I, I think this movie has a lot of serious points. There are, there, there really are statements to be made. Preach the it. movie does make some statements about various things, right? It talks about the div, uh, different aspects of of culture, and even though it is it is put in this campy, fun bubblegum packaging, right? Mm-hmm. There are still beats here and there of things that are 
you know, serious topics, uh, yes. you know? And so I think that it can be really enjoyed both ways, right? You can go with the fun of it, you know, which is, which is I, the best way and I highly recommend doing that. Right. But, but also there are, you know, moments of little things here and there, maybe, maybe there are even throwaway lines. Uh, you know, maybe there are things you may not notice on a first watch, but there are various little points and little beats of where they are trying to make a serious commentary, you know, about society and, you know, where things can go if the country and our leadership goes, you know, goes the wrong way, goes in an authoritarian, yeah. goes, goes towards an authoritarian regime. And so I, I feel this movie can be appreciated for, for both points. For sure. And you know what? I think, unfortunately, that is something that is often overlooked whenever people start bashing this movie for silly things, is that whenever you take apart some of the layers, it does have some interesting things to say. But since you already talked on that, let me talk about things that are just silly and not important. Absolutely. <laughs> Please do. Going back just a little bit to some of the things you were talking about with Taslima. I thought it was interesting what they did with her character. And though I don't know that it was Carpenter's intention, I look at her character as kind of a red herring comparing to Escape from New York. Because in Escape from New York, Kurt Russell's character, Snake Plissken, comes across Brain and his girlfriend, Maggie, played by Adrian Barbeau. I think that whenever we meet Taslima in this movie, we kind of start to feel like, oh, okay, so this has been a carbon copy up to this point. Surely this is Maggie. Only for this character to get shot to death a couple minutes later. So I thought that that was kind of like a poke in a way that, hey, this isn't exactly the same. You might be expecting some things, but not all of them are going to match the previous movie. That's just my take on it anyway. So to be to be semi-contrary in there, I I felt that. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yes, to be semi-contrary, I felt that it was the same as first. I I thought Taslima was less important than Maggie and more like really? the girl in I believe her I believe her actual credit is girl in chock full of nuts at the beginning of Escape from New York. She's the girl that's in the store. Or the restaurant when the zombies okay. start coming out of the beginning, yeah, yeah. Because she doesn't make it either, right? And I, I equated Taslima to her, and not I didn't prov- I didn't I didn't uh, Maybe. I, I didn't project the importance of of what Maggie was doing to see, um, Taslima's character. Okay, I can totally see why you'd say that. I can totally see why you'd say that. However, I must disagree, and the reason I disagree is because for the reasons that you already explained with her. A uh, little monologue there about why she is in Los Angeles. Um, I think, seriously, just the way she delivers that monologue gives her character so much more weight than just the throwaway character that we got hiding in that diner in Escape from New York. So I, I, I guess then, in a way, if I was going to try to compromise, I'd say it's somewhere in the middle. Okay. I guess we can. I guess we can meet that happy medium, and well, yeah, meet somewhere in the middle. But the, yeah, I, I think that a part of the way that just made it where a throwaway character had a little bit more to do and say because you know she gave this great impassioned speech of why LA was great, and then they kill her. It's great. It was. I, I I laughed out loud when that happened. <laughs> I was crying. <laughs> when I saw that. 
Hey, it's all sunshine and rainbows here on Silver Linings, folks. Exactly, yeah. That that might say something about me, but I I don't care. It was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) So, So... So... And then real quick, just, uh, you know, just going to touch on this real quick. Bruce Campbell, I thought that his screen time, though short, was, you know, in holding with a lot of the other big name actors that were in this movie. I mean, when you think about it, Peter Fonda's pipeline really didn't have much more time on screen either. Although I think he's more memorable because of the surfing scene. Pam Greer really didn't have that much when you think about it you know, a lot of these people. So, but what he, this screen time that he did get, I, I thought that uh, that was a very interesting little set piece that they did there. And like you said, you know, interesting satirical little jab at plastic surgery in Los Angeles and not just Los Angeles, but you know, in, in our country. Yeah. The movie did have a lot of, at the time, famous actors with, you know, small bit parts in it. And uh, so, but what you gonna do? Exactly. I don't. I don't have anything to add to that. (laughs) (laughs) This is insane. It is. That's the point. Okay. But speaking of which, we do have a really great cast in this movie, and I think we just need to shout out some of these names because uh, we're not going to get to every single scene in this movie, uh, although I'd like to. But you know, there are just some stellar performances here. The first, if I may, the first one that I really just want to talk about real quick is Cliff Robertson as the president, because I think that not only did uh, they give this part so much more meat than in the first movie, but it is played really, really menacingly well by Cliff Robertson. And I think that he really channels Pat Robertson. You know who I'm talking about? Yes. The televangelist. Yes. Yeah, very much so. And that's who the character was based on initially. Really? Yes. When they were when they were writing that character, they were basing it on Pat Robertson. Imagine that. Well, <laughs> there you go. Yes. But uh, I thought that was great. And I think that he really relishes the role. And you could totally see... Uh, a militant, maniacal, evangelical person in power doing things like this. It's really a great part. And I think Cliff Robertson, uh, not to beat a dead horse, not to sound like a broken record, not to toot my own horn, (laughs) but he did a great job. (laughs) uh, Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that he really did a good job of taking what was, you know, also in the grand scheme of things, a limited amount of screen time and yes. creating a character that you disliked. Right. Right. And when you, you know, where, you know, I guess in sticking with the comparison and contrasting of this movie from escape from New York, when the, the president in this movie fails, right. You are glad, right. You, you don't like, he, he has done enough to, to create the, the sense of, Oh, he's evil. He's not only, you know, not only been able to finagle an earthquake into a lifetime appointment of power, but also he's, you know, he's willing to do anything to snake who we, you know, who we like. Um, he's, he's also willing to, he wants his own daughter killed. Um, he's basically doing anything he can to keep and maintain power. So for him to go down or get his come up into something that you think is great, you know, and that's to me is another credit to this, remake than the first one, right? The in the yes. first movie, the president also gets a comeuppance, but you don't really feel that he's a horrible person. 
you're not right. you're not really against them. You, you know, you don't, you don't even necessarily understand why they did it that way, right? It seems to be like, well, you know, really the president in that one was a pretty decent, seemingly moderately some pretty decent guy. Where in this one, he, you know, he he has played very well and and played up to be a whole person who needs to be stopped. And even to the point of where you know other actors like with uh, Stacy Keach who plays you know plays uh, Commander Malloy when the, the commander keeps and keep, keeps following his orders, you start to think, hey, maybe that you know you should you know, you start to then think even uh, poorly with those characters as well. Like, you know, the, the other cops and everything. You're like, you guys are blindly following this person who is clearly mm-hmm. doing things that are immoral if he's going to, especially if he's going to, you know, give the order that, hey, you need to, you know, kill your own daughter, right? right. And, and that, yeah. you know, maybe at that point you start to say, hey, maybe we should then think, maybe, do we follow this person or not? Yeah, and I think it's especially important that the president and Commander Malloy be played well because the... John Carpenter, and by extension, this movie and its main character, Snake Plissken, are very anti-establishment. And for Snake Plissken to come across as a likable good guy, you really need the help of the antagonist, the establishment characters, the president and the commander here, being unlikable. And Stacey Keach and Cliff Robertson both did a phenomenal job. Uh, yeah, yes, I agree. Although I don't, I think that the unlikability of Snake Plissken is more in the idea of the character, right? The character, uh, having seen both movies, I, I would argue the character really hasn't done anything to make you dislike them or to even make you think that he's all that bad of a person, right? You know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, yeah, he is doing these missions in his own self-interest, but even inside of these missions, there are decision points that we can make where he could do, you know, the, do the a bad thing versus a good thing. For, you know, for example, even when he's doing his, you know, he gets along with his mission and he has the thing with uh, Taslima at the beginning that we discussed when they escaped from the surgeon, right? He doesn't have to take Taslima with him. And, and honestly, if he's not a somewhat decent person, he wouldn't, right? He didn't, he didn't need her for any more information. She wasn't really going to be all that helpful for him. And, and she was just going to slow him down, right? So, so he could have just as easily just killed her and moved on. But he, he chose not to. And so I think that, you know, if, if trying to build him as an anti-hero is, to me, what they do more in the trailer as the idea. But the execution in the movie is you, you still root for him the whole way. At no, at no point in time do you think, oh, you know, that you, you never think that he's a bad guy. Right. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting that in neither film, really, are we told what he did that was so bad. I mean, we know that he was some kind of a soldier, that he was a war hero, that he was this just force of nature, basically. And then something happened. Actually, I take that back. I do believe in the previous movie, it said that he attempted to rob the national mint or something. Along those something lines. like that. It, it didn't. But either way, I, I, it's, it's very... It's very ambiguous. It's it's really not. Yeah, yeah. You keep yeah. talking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it, it's more or less ambiguous, really, what his crimes are. Because, and also, I think it's interesting, especially in this movie, how the crimes are really referred to. You know, your indiscretions or your immoralities. I think they call it because. Uh, the president, in his religious righteousness. You, tends to look upon things more so as sin than 
say a crime or a misdemeanor or what have you. Not that you're going to go to LA for a misdemeanor, but you know, no, no, not in this world, not in this universe. You're not. So, so yeah, so, you know yeah. what we have not talked about? What is that? The LA bad guy, Cuervo Jones. Yeah. <laughs> you said all that needs to be said right there. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll give my quick two cents on it and then I'll, I'll, I'll shut up about it. So I felt that he was a bad, they made him look like Che, che Guerrero and then they just made it like a bad stereotypical, you know, Hey, we're going to use a South American terrorist that's in LA that, you know, can speak Spanish go. Right. And so I think that it, his character was uh, the motivation. I didn't feel that was really that great. Um, and and then even the execution of the character, it just didn't find it to be super compelling. I mean, you know, I was fine with him being stopped, but at no point in time did I care really one way or the other. You know, the him being stopped meant Snake got to live. So I guess I was on board, but I didn't find yeah. him to be particularly menacing or uh, particularly sympathetic. So I just, sure, you know, yeah. I was kind of just apathetic toward him and really just found him as more of a vehicle to finally explain what was in the black box. Right. I mean, in all honesty, at the end of the day, the president is the bad guy of this picture. Uh, Cuervo Jones is pretty much just the fill in bad guy face, <laughs> basically. And he, pretty much fulfills his role. I mean, he's not bad per se, but I think you hit the nail on the head. He's pretty much a generic Che Guevara character. And yeah, he is. And I think in that regard, the character is a product of the time this movie was made in. Yeah, yes, I agree. And also I think he's really more that he's not the true. I mean, the president is the real bad guy in this movie, right? Cliff Robertson is the, is the bad guy. And Snake right. Plissken is our hero. And that really is where things are set up. And everybody else is, you know, a supporting character to, to those, to those, to those means. And, um, you know, the one, I guess, since we're going to, in covering the cast, and one of the things we should talk about is Map to the Stars Eddie, who, Ooh, yes. yeah, is played by Steve Buscemi, who's, I find it great, but then I, I like Steve Buscemi because, you know, right, it, yeah. at the end of the day, while Steve Buscemi is a good actor and has a decent range, you know, there are lots of movies where Steve Buscemi's playing, you know, it's Steve Buscemi. Right. And so he, he's great <laughs> in it and he's, you know, he's entertaining. He's his loyalty flip flops, uh, scene to scene. Right. He has, right. He ha, you know, a, and, and I, I think that, you know, there's a, a credit to, you know, and I'll, I'll say this from the, the acting and the performance of Steve Buscemi. I think there's a credit to him in the movie in that he flip flops loyalty back and forth between, you know, snake and, uh, Oh goodness, was it Cuervo Jones? And, you know, and honestly, whoever else can then you know help him get to whatever he <laughs> thinks his next thing should be, right? He exactly. falls back and forth. He betrays people, and really, at no point in time do you hate him, right? You don't necessarily want him to die. You don't want him to go away. And everything. He just you maintain a sense of empathy towards him, and you're kind of like, hey, I still kind of like him. He's still funny and entertaining. And even though I may or may not want him to succeed, at no point in time do I want him to die or you know anything. Sure, like that. Yeah. You're just kind of like you. Know, and so I think that that is, you know. Some of that's going to be the writing and the storytelling, but but at the end of the day, I think that it, it is a it is a statement of you know a hidden gem in this movie in that that's a difficult performance to do, right? Oh, because yeah. he does change loyalties scene to scene, right? And so you know you you want to kind of hate him, but you never really do. And I think All that right. is really uh, th that is also another really kind of a hidden thing about this, you know, in the 
in the overall criticisms of this movie and what people think about it as a whole, you know, the, some of the little things you can pull out of it are there are great little performances like what Steve Buscemi is doing to make you not hate a weaselly character. Yeah. And you know what? I think that that comes down to his performance because, you know, I, and I know that's essentially what you just said, but as far as the writing of this movie goes, there is no reason whatsoever to care about Map to the Stars Eddie. But the way Steve Buscemi portrays him, you can't help but have just a little bit of empathy for him, like you said. So I give full credit for that empathy to Mr. Buscemi. Hats off. So that's pretty much our cast of characters, <laughs> and they are wonderful. But before we start to wrap things up here, uh, I think we do need to examine the ending of this movie, because I I believe that it is a vast improvement on Escape from New York, and I think that there are a lot of layers to it, and I really, really found myself enjoying what Carpenter and his actors lent to this ending here. And also, if I'm not mistaken, this ending is the reason why Kurt Russell has a writing credit on this movie. I think that this is where yes. he yes, it is. had some input. Yeah. So in the yes. ending, we have Snake and his posse which at this point in time includes Utopia, the president's daughter, Hershey and her gang all escaping that helicopter. Hershey and her gang get blown up <laughs> because <laughs> convenient. I know, right? Uh, never putting any kids in the backseat ever again <laughs> because of this movie. No, but, um, and then, uh, what happens is we see Snake put one of those devices with that they control the satellites with on Utopia and then makes her jump out of the helicopter. And then right before he gets out or right before the helicopter crashes, he manages to get out. And then there's the president and Malloy and that whole group of thugs. Sorry, next real film board right there to just get their loot and do what they're going to do, stinking bad guys. And so then what happens is Snake... Snake's playing some three-dimensional chess. <laughs> and so I think that there's really... There's there's the there's the problem that is that that is that happens and then there's a resolution that works. So there are three-dimensional chesses. They put the fake... He put the fake uh, disc in Utopia's pocket and then he had the real disc on them. When he gets... When they come out, then... You know, he offers the one that he has, which is the real disc that would give right. him the real power. And then they say no. Then, then Commander Malloy, uh, then brilliantly, I will put in air quotes, decides to search Utopia uh, for, to see if that she has a disc on her. She does. That is the fake disc, and that is the one that they take. And then from there, then the president going makes his idle threat to, I believe it was Cuba in. Argentina or was yeah I think it was Cuban Argentina that he was going to you know shut down do an EMP pulse to shut them down so that they would be living in the 1400s turns out that he had the fake one and then Snake has the real one who then chooses to once it's discovered that he has the real one he then chooses to uh set in the world code and then bring the entire world to the dark age right right so there's the good part in that you know the president does then fail 
right? Not something we've been rooting for because the president is the bad guy and he's an evil person in this movie. And then our hero decides to take everyone back to, you know, where there's no electronics. And so that, that part and that comeuppance and everything is great. And it's a very satisfying ending in that manner. Um, I think that it's, you know, how they got there was a little bit convoluted, even in the ending. Um, but the fact that they got there is the right resolution and it should be. And it made sense why Snake would be effectively, he's going to give the middle finger to the to the world at this point and say, hey, we're all just going to reset to the right. 1400s. Uh, I, I think I looked at that not even so much as him giving the middle finger to the world. But, you know, no matter which move he decides to make here, someone's going to have the upper hand. And I think that this was his way of leveling the playing field for everybody. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a a crummy thing to wind up happening, but at least everybody winds up on the same level. Yes, I I guess you you could see it that way. Um, I I honestly hadn't hadn't thought of it that way, Um, but that does work. And then that makes it where even though the country of America is being invaded at the end of this, the fact that they lose the electronics makes it where it then goes back to you know, whatever guns they have in their, in their possession in hand to hand right. combat. Right. Um, so yeah, so it does, it does go, go back to that. So, so yeah, so it does level the playing field out and just kind of, it's to me, I, I also viewed it as it is a good way to end not only the story, but to me end the character, right. To say, Hey, we're just going to have this character. He is now shut down the world and then he's just going to go off into the sunset and do, you know, live <laughs> his life. Right, because without electronics, he's not going to be able to be traced from one state to the next or anything else like that. And he's going to just go and and live his live the rest of his life doing, you know, whatever we are going to assume criminal activities he can get up to. But that, I think that it was a it was a good way to to put a put a you know put an ending right. to this character for sure. Yeah, I definitely liked this ending a lot better than the ending for Escape from New York because while they both mirror each other to an extent this one i think makes more sense and is more fulfilling because i mean for one thing in escape from new york the president and you know whether or not he was a bad guy was kind of up in the air you know i mean he we knew he wasn't the best guy but we're basically judging him from the question that snake asks him like what do you think about all the people that died for you and he's like well he gives him the politician's answer like well you know i i my hat's off to them and whatever and then he goes on tv and he plays the tape and you know, snape's actually snape this isn't harry potter snake <laughs> has the real tape that he needed in this one you have more defined roles in our specifically in our antagonist the president and you have snake kind of pulling a switcheroo but it's not the same he has more of a purpose behind it than just hey f the man you know what i mean yeah exactly even though that is very much in Snake's character, because it's very established that well, I think that both movies establish him as anti the man, anti establishment, and I, I, I don't. I, f- I find that that is the one thing I have quibbles with this as a whole. In that, I, I still don't feel that they've made. I don't think either movie was able to successfully make Snake Plissken and even an even an anti establishment character. Right, he he is a straightforward. Just he's a good guy. There, there's not, the, 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 you know, it's it's like they they talk about him in the past mm-hmm. tense, 
Like, you know, in each movie, they talk about things that he has done in the past um, that are supposedly horrible. But even when they discuss them, you kind of think, well, was it bad? Or was you guys just, you know, was he misunderstood? Was he really doing the right thing? Was he doing the wrong thing for the right reasons? You know, they just don't have a real true anti-establishment bent. I mean, the Escape from New York kind of gave you a little bit of that in that ending, but the ending doesn't make sense. Right, the ending is like, well, they're going to have world peace, and so you want anti-world peace, which is kind of like, okay, well, maybe you're kind of bad there, but it's more confusing than anger, uh, anger-inducing. And in Escape from LA, you know, again, I, I don't think he does anything uh, that you wouldn't expect a regular superhero, <laughs> not superhero, but a regular hero of a movie, a good, you know, regular hero of a movie, well, I, to do. And and okay, so check this out in both movies. All right. Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. You have that moment near the beginning of the movie where they come to Snake with the deal. You're going to do this. Yes. And then, you know, we'll pardon you, whatever. And in both situations, in both movies, the president comes into play in one way or another. And whenever mm -hmm. the president comes into play, Snake treats the president, you know, the man that you think you would give the utmost respect to because he's the leader of the nation, treats the president like a bum, basically. In the first movie... Mm -hmm. You know, they say, you know, we got to rescue the president. He's like, and he, I forget what exactly what he says, but he says some offhand remark that's not taken well. And then in this movie, he actually tries to lunge at the president at one point before he realizes that, oh, he's a hologram. And, you know, he, whenever he's introduced yeah. to the president in this one, you know, instead of saying some, as most people would probably say, oh, you're nice to meet you, sir, or what have you. Uh, his response is, oh, so I hear you're having domestic problems, you know? Right, right, right. Well, yeah, see, he does have some disrespect toward the president, but I think even in both movies, right, the deal they're giving him, even if they say we're going to, like in the first one, they do kind of say they're going to pardon him, right? And then the second one, I think they actually do, they do the same thing. But in both cases, they provide a mission that is ridiculous and impossible and a high probability of him dying. And from his perspective, he may look at it, which I would understand of, you know what? I'm, I am, you know, I'm, I'm snake Plissken. I'm a big time criminal. People know me pretty famous. You put me in a bunch bunks, a bunch of other criminals. It'll be a while before I'm near the, near at the top of this food chain anyway. So I would rather just take my chances and be in this in prison than to risk my life to die for you. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So I just don't, well, yeah. Suffice but, it to you know, say, but, we, <laughs> we have slightly differing views on the anti-establishment-ness of the character, but. Yes. So, um, so should we move on to the filmmaker's let's goals? Let's do that. Sad story. You gotta smoke. So, at the end of the day, we have this movie. It is what it is. Some people like it, some people don't. One thing we need to examine is what were the filmmakers' goals whenever they made this movie? And I thought it was really interesting because I found this one interview with John Carpenter that was specifically about Escape from L.A. And the one phrase that he kept repeating over and over again in regards to what this movie was supposed to be was cowboy noir. <laughs> cowboy okay. noir. Uh, what would be another example? I don't of that? know what another example of that would be, but <laughs> I am 
I thought this was interesting. I would argue that he met that goal. And the reason I say that is there is actually somebody within the next real family, and I'm not going to name any names because I don't know if they want to be associated with this movie or not. They didn't seem to like it. (laughs) But uh, one thing they said in their review about this movie was the ending of this movie with the music and everything did feel a little bit like a spaghetti Western. So I guess there's that. (laughs) It, It does. It does. And that's, the the music is one of the few things about the movie that I, I was not a big fan Ooh. of. So, um, so I think yeah, so I think they just kind of just blow yeah. past. A that lot of the music out. was very much guitar and harmonica uh, riffs, and so it was very I don't want to say countryish because I, I wouldn't call it countryish, but it's westernish. Yes, yeah, it did have that feel. Um, so, but I I think that. Um, at least to me, when I think about what the filmmakers' goals were, right? I mean, it, it, you have the the hard and fast of them saying about it being cowboy noir, but I, I just look at it like that they really had just had two goals, right? This is really a remake. So they wanted to keep the theme of America falling under an authoritarian ruler uh, with the solution of putting all the undesirables in one place and away from the good citizens. I'll follow of the that. Country, right? Then keep the theme that our anti-hero will not let them win in the end, right? And then and then make the movie itself more fun to watch, ramp up the stunts, do some things that are out of character, uh, you know, punch up a little bit of the dialogue. But, and I think that that is, they were successful in that, right? They were successful in, we wanted to take the skeleton of escape from New York and make it a more fun mm. movie. And I, and I feel that they, they really did succeed in that and taking that idea and making it more fun, making it more watchable, making it more rewatchable. Right, because even after you see when you see Escape from New York once, I think you're pretty much that's good, right? You know, there's nothing about it you feel you missed. You want to see anything else again? But Escape from LA, there's lots of little fun scenes and little nuggets of, hey, maybe I'll watch that sure, one. Sure, yeah, I agree. Uh, it definitely would have achieved those goals, and I agree. I think that is whether they actually acknowledged it outright or not, I think those would be the goals that the filmmakers had in making this film. And I don't know that I would call it better than Escape from New York because of how different that well, oh, I I you would. <laughs> it's better. But because they are very different films, but I would definitely put it on the same plane. And I know that may shock some people, but guess what? This is silver linings, folks. We cross lines. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's shocking people that you think that they're, they're equally as good. Escape from L.A. is <laughs> All right. So that being said, you, we know you think it's better. Uh, we know I think yes. it's the same. Out of a five-star ranking, what would you give it? Well, in looking at it on my flick chart, um, uh, uh, you know, when rank the movies there, it ends at places for me, um, which is 148 out of uh, 397. So it's a, it makes it a definitely above average movie. It's a, it's a good enjoyable movie. And then according to this, then I should rate it about three stars. And so I find that, you know, for me personally, I, I think it's a little bit better than the three star movies. Uh, so, you know, I'd probably rate it about three and a mm, half yeah. stars. I think that the um, the fun factor of the movie um, really is it makes it a, a little bit better. Uh, then the, 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 it makes it better, right? It makes it more enjoyable because it's not just a 
good movie with a few flaws, but it's a good movie with a few flaws that's fun to watch and that you you can enjoy watching it the first time, you can enjoy watching it again, right? And you can definitely see it in multiple ways, multiple viewings. You can see different perspectives. And so I, I really feel that it is a three and a half. Star. I agree. That's exactly what I would give it. Uh, three and a half, almost bordering on four stars. And on my own flick chart, it ranks at uh, 64% out of the movies that I've seen. So definitely over that IMDB rule of six or more. Yeah. So we both rate this as above average. So I think that that takes us to the final evaluation of silver linings, which asks, no begs the question, does this film (laughs) deserve the bad rap that it gets? And obviously from this discussion that you and I have had, that answer is no, 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 it is not. It is a good, fun, enjoyable movie, and it is better than the original. And that is a hard <laughs> thing for a sequel to obtain because there are very few sequels that are better than for that. sure. Well, Ocean, I think that that wraps that up then. Uh, this was a great conversation about a great movie. Hopefully, if you're listening to this episode, You'll give this movie another chance if you weren't that big a fan of it. Maybe you'll see some things about it now that you'll see in a different light. Maybe you'll like. And uh, if not, that's okay, too. We won't judge you. Too harshly. Ocean, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. Thank you. It was uh, always a pleasure and looking forward to the next one. This has been Silver Linings, part of the next real family of film podcasts on TrueStory.fm. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and that we may have even inspired you to give this movie a second chance. If you'd like to get more involved with The Next Reel community, visit thenextreel.com slash membership. For just a dollar a month, you can become a one reeler and join our online community in our Discord server. And for a few dollars more a month, become a two reeler supporter and join us for show live streams as we record, early access to shows in your very own personal podcast feed, and access to the super-secret member channels in Discord. Plus, you can now support with a single annual donation at either level. Thank you to everyone who's joined us and to all who are checking us out. Your support allows us to keep producing and growing the next real family of podcasts here at TrueStory.fm. See you in the next episode. I love the conversations that so many of our hosts have had on their shows. Steve and JJ on Trailer Rewind, Ray and Ocean on Silver Linings, even Tommy's short-lived No, No, Wait, Hear Me Out. And so many films they've discussed started out as a book, a play, or even a TV series. Well, now you can support our whole family of podcasts by using our new Originals page to buy the original source material used to inspire films covered on our shows. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these fantastic conversations. It's a wonderful way to support the show. Producing these podcasts week after week require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, try using our originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy the book, play, video game, movie, etc. upon which the movie is based. Original material for trailer rewind movies like If Beale Street Could Talk, The Goldfinch, Aniara, 
or The Two Faces of January. Or Silver Linings movies like Repo Men, which was based on the repossession Mambo. Plus, by using those links to buy books, Amazon and Apple show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals. It's a fantastic way to support the show and find a great book to read. That's right. Head over to thenextreel.com slash originals to find your next read and get started today. Music 